0: Hello and welcome back to the Literary Salon podcast. It's me, Damien Barr, welcoming you to this very special edition. Tonight we are celebrating the launch of the memoir, Somebody to Love, written by Alexandra Heminsley. She is the author of Running Like a Girl and Leap In. She's been at the Salon before and you can hear her on our podcast in tonight's fabulous moment of pure joy, she shares the story um, of her memoir, which is not always joyful. It's in fact incredibly challenging and difficult, but it's the joy of everything working out right that I want to share with you tonight. The best memoirs make you feel like you really know the writer inside and out. That's certainly true of Alexandra Hemensley, who takes her own body as her subject. We wince at every needle as she reveals what IVF is really like and rejoice with her as she gets the family she's given so much for. When her partner begins to question their gender and starts to transition, this fledgling family is put to the test. It'll have you in bits in a good way. What you're about to hear is a discussion between me and Alex celebrating Publication Day for Somebody to Love, which is available in all good independent bookshops now. And a warning to anybody who's listening, it does contain descriptions of medical procedures and also assault. Good evening, everybody. It is eight o'clock and we are here tonight to celebrate the launch of Somebody To Love. And an absolutely incredible memoir by one of my favourite people in the whole wide world, world. And I'm just gonna waffle on about how while you're all joining us. So thank you very much. I'm very glad to have you all here. I'm gonna let Alex join us in a second. There you are. <laughs> Hi.
1: Hi. <laughs> I'm ridiculously excited.
0: <laughs> I know it's like normally we would be in a very big, very busy room swaying and I'd be struggling to get to you across the sea of people and here you are I
1: know I can't believe it <laughs> oh, well, I, I went and got changed
0: words? I got changed into my rainbow pajamas uh, in celebration of the rainbow familyness of your book <laughs>
1: thank
0: you you're very welcome
1: I'm totally overwhelmed by doing an insta live I've done Zooms this week. No one talked to me for the first eight months of lockdown because I was in the writing stage, and now yeah. I feel like I'm Jean Michel Char with all my screens and my keyboards.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just remember to turn them off. That's good... <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't want like Big Brother Uncut. We don't. We don't want to get too too much reality. And um, I've also made myself a cocktail in celebration <laughs> of you.
1: I'm having a Negroni in a Scotch glass. <laughs>
0: that's fine listen it's 2020 the fact that you're using a glass is 2021 (laughs) sorry god still I'm having a Manhattan can I just do a cheers to you and your incredible book
1: and cheers to everyone as well I feel like so buoyed up by the weight of loving people this week so
0: well you have been you have been and you are being and you will continue to be because your book is all about love I'm going to embarrass you a wee bit while you're here Um, So for for those who don't know, who are joining us for the first time, um, Alex's memoir is an incredible memoir. It's like no other I've ever read. Memoirs are supposed to be personal, supposed to be intimate, supposed to be revealing. And so many of them aren't. They're coy and they hide um, or they dress up as a a debut novel. Um, But this is incredibly powerful, incredibly direct, incredibly generous. Um, It takes us right to the heart of heart, the heart that's on the, the cover of the book. we wince at every needle as she reveals what IVF is really like and <laughs> rejoice with her as she gets the family that she's given so much for. And when her partner begins to question their agenda and starts to transition, this wee family is put to the test. Um, it's an astonishing book. And I remember when you, you sent me the proof of it. Um, God, when was that now? 18 months ago? Something like that.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, just the end of 2019.
0: And for people who don't know, the book is dedicated, in fact, to me and Mike, who is also watching. So, you know, I've known you for, you know, how long? Now? Over a decade, 15 years, something like that. And I've lived with you through lots of these events. And yet I found whole new aspects of, of the story um, that you were able to tell, and through your reflection, through the way that you wrote it. So it's, you know, even for somebody who's lived through it with you and it's still incredibly revealing and finds these new truths. So I I have to keep congratulating you about it because it is incredible. And I'm going to make you beam now because I'm reading some of the things that are on Amazon the good things that are on Amazon because it is only Oh my good. god I've been so, so
1: disciplined I haven't looked.
0: No, oh, well you see see I've looked for you I've been I've been <laughs> furiously updating and checking it I'm like do you want to know where it is now it's in the top 2000 and it's number eight in anthropology and sociology number eight, and, <laughs> number eight in family and social groups and by the end of this live it will be number one so um, here are some of the things that people have said about it. David Nichols said that it is insightful and wise generous and kind <laughs> brian e. gordon said it took my breath away it's such a beautiful book so full of compassion and kindness even in its furious honesty and then this is one of my favorites this is from naomi alderman who you know we just wish she could do take over the running of the country she's incredible <laughs> naomi said a brave thoughtful and timely book calming and inspiring on our different relationships with our bodies and vitally compassionate on trans rights. So, and then there are about 50 other amazing quotes. <laughs> How does that make you feel apart from slightly mortified?
1: <laughs> it makes me feel slightly mortified and it makes, I think I'm, I'm very relieved because although it was slightly um, agonizing for a while when the book was finished and ready to go, but because of how publishing schedules work, there was a massive gap mm. during the pandemic for for me to panic about all the yeah. eventualities. But I am in mean, now that we've reached January, despite there being no bookshops open. I'm really glad that I had the space and time to sort of sit with, um, to sort of reconcile myself to the like the res- the variety of responses that would lead to publication, and yeah. also to kind of let it. Breathe a bit to to come out after a lot of the sort of political stuff had um unfurled as it was always going to um hmm. so yeah I'm, I'm 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 proud and relieved <laughs> that it's been allowed to stand on its own.
0: It's been wonderful watching um people readers get in touch with you um on Instagram and on Twitter you know normally you'd see them at yeah. events, but you know people are taking the time to write to you and talk to you about what kind of impact the book has had on them can you share some of those responses with us or give yeah, us a sense it, of and what they are it's been really
1: it's been really interesting where they've gone as mm-hmm. well um that i've had a few things on twitter that were, but most people have contacted me by email or um instagram and i don't know whether it's because I've always seen Twitter as more of a worky space. So I've shared less of myself there Mm. historically. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the people that I've talked to on Instagram over the years have felt more invested or if it feels like less of a political environment. But the emails and the messages that I've had there have been, um, they've been a massive relief to be honest, because Mm. it feels like I've reached the people that I wanted to reach. So I've, I've heard from people who've sort of said they, they hadn't really kind of built up the metal to kind of engage with the subject at all of the the trans elements. But also I've heard from my old readers as well. I've always had such a sort of two way relationship with the readers of Running mm. Like a Girl and Leap In where they I wrote the book and then they went out and ran marathons when they were grieving or supporting people who were suffering from cancer or they've gone on to kind of get over IVF and report back two years later when it didn't work out but they're just glowing with happiness about something else and to still keep that kind of circular dialogue with those readers has been a massive relief that they all just didn't go what what I thought you were gonna do cycling
0: yeah um, yeah <laughs> That's this, one this a bit left field
1: Yeah, and I've heard from families of trans people as well. And the thing that's um, been a massive weight off my shoulders, um, that I've heard from people who have been in relationships with trans people and have either stayed or not stayed, and parents of trans people who said, "A thank you for being as honest about the difficult times as I have, because that felt like, obviously, the most high stakes thing to do you couldn't write the book without kind of going all in and telling the truth but well, obviously that's
0: was... actually you yeah you could you, could. <laughs> you, you couldn't really write a could book have done that, you did do that.
1: <laughs> um and so I really wanted to to be honest and but that did involve writing you know some of the the darkest thoughts that I thought on my worst days on the page and knowing that that could then be filleted out and used differently for different reasons. But the response I've had from other families with trans people in them, in whatever capacity, has been, thank you for saying that. And I hadn't thought of this, but they'd said that the instinct to just cover everything in rainbows and say, everything's wonderful, love is all you need, just hashtag be kind. Is it is a strong you want to protect the people you love, but also it can put a lot of pressure on you to not feel the thoughts that you're entitled to have or to feel. And so um in some respect providing an outlet and providing an insight into the fact that it's been a journey, I didn't just go, Cool (laughs) Um, has been yeah, I'm just so glad that I haven't had six hundred emails from people saying, I can't believe you've said you found this difficult.
0: (laughs) Um I mean, I I think that you're you're very honest about the difficulties and the problems and those dark days that you mentioned, um, in, in how they affect you and how they affect your partner and how they affect your child. Um, but you're not um, it's it's not about a process of allocating blame or indeed of signalling virtue. And um, it, it's it's yeah. a process of mutual discovery, and I I think that's one of the most one of the most important parts of the book. I mean, what was it what was it like for you writing about these experiences so close to them. Because we're not talking about ten or twenty years ago. We're talking yeah. you know about the very, you know, the very near, almost present in fact. What what was that like? Yeah,
1: it was definitely it was like the final part of solidifying how I felt and thought about it all. Because um when I sold the book, some of the offers were for quite a different kind of book. They did want maybe more of a overtly mass market memoir with of just that story of my marriage basically and my family with you know photograph inserts and things like that which I didn't want to do because I don't think it's possible to see just what happened to our family without the prism of the things I'd written about in the past and the relationship that I had with my readers yeah and um and what happened with the Harmony test? I don't know, how, I mean, I imagine not very many people have read the book Can so you just explain but... a little bit about what
0: happened with that? Yeah,
1: um, so if you pick the story up at the end of Leap-In, <laughs> I'd recon- reconciled myself to the fact that my last embryo wouldn't work, and it did. <laughs> um, so I was pregnant and also starting to do all the publicity for Leap-In, and so I, I was very anxious that I didn't want to tell anyone I was pregnant until I knew it was a viable pregnancy but the NHS didn't have space for me to have a 12 week test until um, I was like going to be 14 or 15 weeks pregnant. Um, and I knew because of my age, I'm, I was at a geriatric pregnancy. A geriatric that the the, the basic blood tests that the NHS do <laughs> would probably come back saying that I was at risk and I probably end up having to have an amniocentesis, which I didn't want to have because of the risk of miscarriage. So I paid a fucking fortune Oh, it's nice to say that. I couldn't say that on women's hour Um, (laughs) to have a DNA test. Uh, It's called the harmony test. And most people have it to find out the sex of the child, the embryo, the fetus. I can't remember when an embryo becomes a fetus. Um, It it used to seem very important, but now that it's somebody that smears pomegranate on the kitchen walls, it doesn't seem important at all. Mm. Um, And I had that test and they may, I never got to the bottom of it because I stopped talking to that clinic but they came back and told me that I shared no DNA with the child. And I was at that point about eight or nine weeks pregnant. So it threw up massive possibilities. It threw up the possibility that the child was not mine, but was my ex's with somebody else, or that it was two other people entirely's um, embryo. Where was our embryo? Had it been used? Had it been born while we were trying all the other ones? And also it put me in a very specific position of insight into uh, what was sort of coming a bit further down the line about taking hormones and Mm. messing with nature to do what you feel is right for you. I perceived myself to be someone who would be a mother and who would be a good and deserving mother. So I took hormones and medical intervention to allow me to do that. It was not controversial and it was available to me on the NHS. 40 years ago, IVF was where trans lives are now in many ways with um, far-right Christian groups banging on the door telling you you're immoral and people trying to rationalize that messing with nature would end with us all, you know, in bed with the devil. And there were a few moments then when I did think I was in bed with the devil when I thought I might be about to have someone else's baby.
0: <laughs> Hi, Ruth,
1: um, <laughs> But it But it, it felt like I was... I can never obviously understand what it is to live a trans life, but I felt like I was on the threshold of that world, like someone had whipped away the velvet curtain and I was allowed to see into a set of emotions that Mm. I could never have conceived of otherwise. Um, And I was also assaulted on a train when I was very heavily pregnant and that led to a court case which the guy who admitted to having like a lo- like a laughable shopping list of like something like ten pints, ten gin and tonics, two bottles of white wine, and the the magistrate said in the course that the court that it would be really awful for him to be found guilty in the in there was a still a chance he hadn't done it even if I thought he'd done it it would be it would be awful to be wrongly accused and yes he had had a lot to drink but I was pregnant and that might mean I was really quite emotional so it was better oh, to go with not guilty. And that just floored me to be told something that I absolutely knew was true by the system, the man, <laughs> mm. the, the structures that you grow up believing are in place to protect you. And, when, and so they all informed each other a lot. And mm. so it was impossible to kind of go into the writing of the book without bearing them all in mind, which was why I wanted to do a slightly different book than just straight memoir it had to be coming at it from an angle that I felt was the interesting one rather than just sort of selling my family (laughs) uh, as the main attraction I mean obviously I understand that this first week press has put the biggest um, gaze onto them but it's I think when people start reading it they will understand that the story was wider and themes are broader
0: how do they feel about it
1: um my son is delighted. He has been swaggering around telling everyone that I write a book about loving everyone, which in Brighton, in a pandemic, <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably going to have Pretty Patel on my doorstop soon. Um, but yeah, and my ex has been really supportive. She hasn't read it, and I do understand that. I don't think I would like to read someone else's description of my most mm. troublesome time. I, do, I wouldn't like to read it from someone else's perspective. Mm. Um, and there was a sort of um, awkward point towards the end of the publication pub- publication process where um, my editor was like, well, if she isn't gonna read it, she does have to tell us that we have consent to publish because you there is still an outsized chance that you did just make all of this up. <laughs> and it was in many ways the most sort of sisterly thing she could ever have done for me. Cause she wrote to Chateau and you know, this sort of lawyer letter and said, I completely trust her. I've seen the process she's gone through with her past books. And I hope you will reach as many people as possible. And that felt like the kind of full stop on a kind of process of redeveloping and reaffirming and reassessing uh, uh, what had been a friendship and then a marriage and is now an uncategorisable family relationship so
0: well you say uncategorizable I mean I, I you know my parents are no longer together and they have a very good relationship now but you know mm-hmm. the the story of your divorce you're the ending because you're not divorced but the, the end of your the relationship that you began together is so overwhelmingly positive i mean you're making it overwhelming. it's it's not something that's just happened and um you know it's a, a, an ongoing process of working it's human and it's messy and it's all of those things um, but you know the, you've made made a choice um you know because i i remember at the time and you, you talk about you touch on this in the book but you know um uh, having a partner who who's transitioning you know a lot of people decide that they want to have a point of view on that You know, and that they think they think you should be, and they still do. And I know that's something that you've experienced um, since publication is that people think that, in some senses, you know, you're a victim of domestic violence, and you just don't know it. You've been gaslit somehow. Yeah, um, it was by your partner.
1: It was interesting because I felt like what has happened over the sort of two years of traumatic things was that. A kind of it was felt like a sequence of my agency being taken away from me so Mm -hmm. the the process of IVF is quite um dispiriting anyway if if you've got any kind of like romantic sense like you grow up and you're told like if you do it right and you're sexy enough and you you know all these kind of romantic dreams you're sold that will and then you get a baby at the end and then suddenly it's like a series of doctors' appointments and blood tests and, and injections yeah and and pain and physical pain, mm-hmm. and also a sense of powerlessness, like deciding to have i v f is a, a an active choice that felt good at the time because i won i didn't want to get to post menopause and not feel like I'd kind of given everything my best shot, but also oh. to to start it does in your three o'clock in the morning dark days feel like a sort of admission of defeat on the Mm. part of your body to some degree and then the harmony test thing felt like well was that like the world saying well you meddled (laughs) Um, and there was a powerlessness to having then I then had a c-section because I had um, quite a difficult pregnancy it turned out I had something with my uterus like a bicornite uterus
0: um, I love the way you just say that and then just like move on really quickly. I, mean, that, <laughs> that, that, that,
1: that, I know, that like, there's no the shortage of people discussing trauma on screens at the moment. Like, yeah. like, can I try not can dwell on that,
0: that scene in the book though? Where I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here, but I think you say something like it was, it was a feeling like um, pulling washing out of a washing machine. That that was how you that's, that, that how yeah, that's what it a,
1: feels like having a that c-section image you're... that image <laughs> is never
0: gonna leave me that image is never gonna leave me
1: yeah you're, you're aware of distant rummaging but you oh, don't know yeah, it's <laughs> but it's it, it was again it was a sort of putting it made me feel like um, you know don't worry the men will deal with it <laughs> um, and then the whole thing with the court case and then sort of obviously it wasn't deliberate but a part of making a decision to transition not decision Decision is not the right word and we're you know we're all still in the process of finding the right sequence of words for that but um, to find out that news after I'd had the baby did definitely leave me with a sense of why tell me now and I don't see it like that at all now because My child is my most treasured and cherished thing in my whole life and there's absolutely nothing that I would change that for Um, but it it did feel like a series of and they weren't all male decisions many of the doctors that and especially in the IVF clinic were women Mm -hmm. Um, it did feel like I just these that all of these decisions had happened and the I'd been I'd kind of been rendered powerless and so it felt like it had to be a very active series of decisions and responses that I made because all I had at that point mm. was how I reacted. Mm. So I took it really seriously. It was like, I felt like, cause it was around the same time that Notre Dame was that huge fire. And I remember looking at the news and thinking, I really feel like that. Like, do you remember all the wood vanished <laughs> yes. and there was just a stone structure and people are like, it's been there for 1300 years. And I felt like that. Yeah. And so I really, I wanted to, try to do the most empathetic thing but also to like work out what was the right thing to do for my family, what was manageable for me mm-hmm. um, and so some people um, didn't really understand what I was sort of trying to process mm-hmm. and some people uh, took I, mean, well, I think I think what was really difficult is when there's a breakup there's mm-hmm. normally a script we have so much pop culture there's barely a top 10 music chart without breakups hmm. there's you know half the female um, commercial fiction industry doesn't exist like we have very very worn tracks on how to break up with people and and yeah. a lot of that is your family and friends becoming fucking livid on your behalf and i didn't feel like that because i could see a very direct line between anti trans sentiment and why you would not want to believe that of yourself and why you would Keep that and, and pressure that down in yourself until you were the geezer that burst mm. um, there was there was never even in my darkest hour there was never part of me that couldn't see how you could how you could how close those two things were connected and I've got family and friends and so many people who I've either been through the process of coming out with um, mm. more in a gay lesbian context that, but um that I kind of understood I, I understand I, un, I already understood very clearly that it's not a decision that you wake up one day and kind mm. of it's not like writing a novel where you're like I'm just gonna have to get down to this today you <laughs> get yeah. that first page done it's you know you reach a breaking point and um and it's I'm... a
0: lifelong process yeah yeah you know, ev- every day is coming out day you know every day yeah. is coming up. yeah
1: you. and now that is part of my life as well yeah. and that was that, that played a huge part in why I wanted to write the book because there was this sort of narrative especially because people knew that I'd had IVF because I'd written about it that was mm. sort of I could sort of feel like two steps away from me there was a sort of narrative starting to form that you know she got her baby and then then she just buggered off <laughs> Yeah, and um and I didn't want to bear that because it wasn't true but also I am not ashamed of what happened. I'm not ashamed of my ex and any of her choices. I'm not ashamed of myself and I am never going to be ashamed of the position that our son is in. And if you don't talk about stuff, it does let the sort of moldy, mildewy smell in. And I just wanted to let light in and say this has happened because there's nothing more exhausting than trying to keep a secret or trying to... Direct a narrative while not actually speaking about it, and mm-hmm. i just i couldn't live like that anyway I'm in mean, terrible you know i would rather tell you what your Christmas presents were on christmas eve you're a blocker place.
0: you're a blocker.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah i am um, I did feel like really that there's no, there's nothing for any of us to be ashamed of, and also mm. what would the alternative be? What would people have us do yeah like pretend it was the eighteen hundreds and that everything was fine. Yeah. Everything's completely fine, guys. And just carry on. What's it going to like seek a prosecution? Yeah. Try and deny trans or queer people millennia of existent and existence and culture. And it's still there was there was the path was perfectly obvious. It just took me a while to <laughs> Yeah,
0: but I mean the thing is you, you it's not a path that you're following. It's a path that you're forging. And I think that that's a, that's a real, that's a distinction that's very important. And I think one of the things that the book does is, you know, forge that path more widely and you're inviting people to come along on it with you. And I think yeah, that that's I would
1: say, really important. I would say the path has definitely been forged. I've heard from people all along this process, even when I was still doing publicity events for Leap In, I got, once I talked about it a tiny bit on Instagram, that was all it took and people would send, press note like folded up this big into mm. the palm of my hand when, they, when I signed a book and they would say don't worry it's happened to me too or I, mm. I think it's happening to me and there are women who have been going through this and making brilliant families out of it mm. uh, there are women who've chosen different paths as well but there are women who have found warm and I was interviewed by somebody today who um, whose husband came out as gay when her, su- her daughter was very young and she uh, and she said to me at the end, she was like, "Don't worry, she's twenty now. You've done the right thing." So mm-hmm. I don't feel like I I'm not, I don't feel like I'm forging the path. What I hope I'm doing is walking along the path with my other, um, you know, compatriots on the path, but like letting off flares. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. we're here and it's fine. And and not just to people with trans people in their families, but to anyone who has. Had that experience of walking into a uh, baby play class and looked around the room and thought, Am I, is my family safe here? If, mm-hmm. if we all turn up together, will we still be welcome here? But these are will new calculations
0: son... for you, Alex, aren't they though? I and mean, this is the thing that I yeah. think that's very interesting is that you're a person who, in their life, you know, as a, as a white, cis, able-bodied, middle-class woman, you know, and, you know, not of course your life's not been without yeah. challenges and you've written about that, but you've gone from a place of, you know, really great privilege to a place of having to negotiate safety um, mm. and to do that kind of emotional and No, no, and don't powerful get me wrong, calculus. I was
1: used to negotiating safety, but it was in a completely different context. Yes, yes,
0: of course. As of course, a,
1: of course. a woman, especially with running and stuff, you know, I, I, I was very used to the whole... Um, you know, running with your keys in your fist type thing. But those are situations that you have grown up uh, acclimatized to. Mm. And this was, you know, you're not supposed to feel afraid when you're going to baby swimming. Mm. But there are still people at baby swimming who can make you feel like you're really not welcome in the world, let alone baby swimming. Poor baby swimming. Nobody was ever
0: awful at baby swimming. (laughs) It's
1: just (laughs) an (laughs) example. But you're not
0: just you're not just thinking about you though you're thinking about your son um, yeah. and you know and you're thinking you're thinking about you know your 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 ex as well if you're in the shared social situations I mean it's I guess it's very yeah. diff- different but if it's just you and and the wee one or, or whether you're there together
1: yeah and um and I also feel really strongly that um to support D is to support us all mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. what life does my son have if He grows up understanding that something innate is to be judged and shunned and cut out of the world. Like, and I just don't want. I don't want to hang out with anyone who thinks that. Let alone create someone who thinks like that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And it was. It was that was. That was one of the biggest burdens of mental. uh, What's it called? I hear people saying emotional admin Mm -hmm. was that kind of constant checking and you know the thing of when you take a child to the doctor and you say you know what about this and you say no and the the mother and then you know there's all there's a whole world of linguistic chaos that as a society and a people we are still unraveling and it's really Mm. contentious but I always was trying to be clear but also fair Mm. and you know things like I went to my son's nursery and and I've consistently kept up with making sure that there are books and representations there that um he doesn't feel like he's the only person whose family isn't shaped like a family should be shaped like Mm. um because we exist yeah (laughs) and we're valid yeah (laughs) and it's not like a question of like um creating a fantasy like we definitely are alive and it definitely has happened (laughs) yeah
0: yeah yeah you and you've definitely put him to bed hopefully an hour ago Um, and it's going to
1: carry on happening
0: I'm
1: I'm not the last family that this situation will happen to and I certainly wasn't the first so yeah yeah.
0: Um, I'm just gonna say if anybody's got any questions um, now is a good time to think about asking them I'm just gonna quickly scroll back through you're in a Alex, and so is my Manhattan it's okay Uh Uh-oh, now she's prepared. (laughs) I made the double. I have taught you well. I'm so proud. It's actually just a constant stream of love hearts and trust and love and lots of people just being absolutely lovely. Bookish Beck says she's two thirds of the way through the book now and really enjoying it. Correct. Thank you. Correct response, Beck. Um, Somebody, Spargo78 says, I'm so glad you resisted the structure of the book as it is so original. Um oh, thank you Libby Jackson wonders when the triathlon trilogy is going to be complete she's kind of got her hands full right now Libby there's a novel to finish I think probably by the end of next week as well as the promo for this So I don't
1: think there'll ever be a triathlon trilogy Maybe that was cycling. what people wanted when I wanted to write this but um, I definitely fell in love with cycling during this period um, and I want to do more of it and I uh, but one big thing that 's happened to me as a part of the last two or three years is less enthusiasm for quantifying myself
0: mm-hmm. so
1: where ten years ago I was finding massive solace and ambition and grit and discovering things about myself that I never knew I had through kind of repeated marathons and trying to get faster and go further and i 've noticed desire. i I know what I can do i 'm proud of myself i don 't need to keep chipping time off it or Mm. adding distance to it so the thought of kind of doing a triathlon I really want to go to Paris I want to be able to cycle to Paris my family cycled to France when we were children and I tell you what it's the greatest movie never made
0: (laughs) it sounds like the the It sounds like National Lampoon. also I'm just gonna say you can put your bike on a train and nobody's gonna judge you <laughs> um, um, I know
1: what my body can do and it's get to St. Pancras.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a question from C Samueline who says, um, how did your family feel and support you? I know they've always been amazing, but just curious. So actually I think your mum is watching. I think that's monograms right there, so we'll have to be very careful. <laughs> yeah,
1: and my sister and your, sister, sister and your brother going, They hell, were all amazing.
0: Happened. They were all amazing. From the day you were born, they've been incredible. They've never ever done anything wrong or upsetting at all
1: and i think it's yeah they're incredible they're incredible i mean it's yeah it's that's all i've got to say no they have been amazing and Mm. thank you for joining in family but what i think is really worth noting is that my family is catholic Mm. i was raised in a catholic family and um it's been interesting on its own to watch my parents sort of reject their politics during the brexit situation anyway because they're like my mum's now a guardian reader which is (laughs) absolutely insane um but also it made me realize how much capacity for good and understanding and forgiveness and and just like wrangling with new concepts there Mm. is Mm. and that having a curious mind and um doing some reading and that kind of thing is it's not you when none of us are tri- tri- as tribal as we think we are, and that was proved in bucket loads. I'm and sure. I found that object. I mean, it was a, it was an enormous relief. You're right there.
0: I'm just plugging <laughs> in you in because my my phone has got too excited and slightly used all its back.
1: <laughs> I feel like I'm supporting you.
0: You are as always. <laughs> <laughs> Go on.
1: But um, yeah, it, it made me realise that people who choose bigotry.
0: A particularly
1: yeah. publicly stated bigotry,
0: which is a choice, are
1: making an active choice yeah. because there could have been parts where my parents um, or my family were to chose anger, and, and let's let's not beat around the bush. They definitely drove down some angry roads sometime, <laughs> yeah, but they didn't end up in destination anger. And that is a testament to what it's possible to be and believe and all that. And I found that really inspiring because obviously I I, um, I live in Brighton and I was better supported in understanding the sort of gnarlier concepts, so.
0: Um, a really good question from, from Alistair, Al Alistair um, up in Edinburgh, who asks, how important was the period of reflection between proof and publishing? It's a very insightful question, but it's a really good one and I know that you know, when you were sending me drafts of the book, you know, you'd finished and then I'd get, this is the final, this is the final, final. I'm definitely not making any more changes on Tuesday, you know, and it got, you know, and I, I got to the yeah. point where I said to you, I was like, please don't send me different versions. <laughs> we will, send me the finished version, you know, and then you, and then you did, but you did take a long time and there were some, I think, quite really important revisions that you did and processes yeah. that you went through and I wonder if you could just talk about that.
1: Well the most important thing about that process is that it was largely done um during the first lockdown when my ex had moved back in. Mm. So instead of being in a kind of hideous endless wrangling litigious mess I was able to go Are you all right with that that term? Was that, like, shouting? Is that like shout All right? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um and that was at times it was a massive pressure to be going through pages that were of the really difficult days and not just around the marriage but around the assault and um the harmony test stuff to be reading those things at a point where all of our brains are in this absolutely hyper anxious you know you were you know we weren't sure if our families were going to live you know, it, I think we're better accustomed to it now, even though arguably what's going on is worse yeah. than we were in a sort of state of shock and terror. And so to be to have that headspace repeated um, was um, quite, it was emotionally really challenging, but from a practical level, with the book and with um, being able to be um, sort of to be much less confrontational than than perhaps other people who've had to legal their books have endured was it was joyful and it felt like um, a real act of trust as well Um, and then there was like then we sent I sent it to some academics to read as well to kind of and and a a trans couple it was a trans man and his girlfriend and then all the Black Lives Matter stuff happened and there were some jokes in the original draft which just I mean it was an amazing exercise in context because there was some stuff around um, about how with the court case one of the reasons I decided to take it to court was because I was really aware of I know it's just a dog-eared tatty old remnant of a word I was so aware of my privilege that I was the kind of person that that courts like I I, that's just undeniable and I sort of put some jokes in about how I'm the sort of person that when that when you ask to speak to the manager the manager comes and stuff like that and then my my editor was like (laughs) we need a Karen edit we really need a Karen edit these jokes
0: don't work anymore the world so, yeah. needs a Karen
1: edit The Sorry world needs it. no Karen jokes guys <laughs> but I'm glad I did it
0: <laughs> uh, no I, I think that um, I think you know with memoirs it's really important that writers have that time uh, because it's a process of, you know, that process of getting on the page isn't just remembering, it is reliving, you know, and it can be re-traumatising. And I think that yeah. you, need to, you need to, you know, it takes a lot out of you to get to that stage. And you've got to do that, get it on the page um, and then step away from it, I, I, you know, yeah. and, and not look at it and not be in the feelings of it. Um, and you can then go back to it and look at it as a piece of writing. Um, yeah it it took a long
1: time before I could do that yeah because obviously it's like the ultimate edition of you know when you have like a minor out with someone by the shopping trolleys in Sainsbury's and then as you walk away you think of the killer line (laughs) that you should have used and so writing a memoir is the ultimate version of that yeah. so you get to go back and go no actually I'm gonna say that what I said was this and the temptation is to keep going and keep perfecting yourself but also okay. um, it, it it is so there were when I wanted to when I started writing it there were like Angry, resentful little sentences to all all sorts of people um, mm. that I really wanted to kind of get down. And I'd kind of had voice notes on my phone and written notes. I mean, even though I think the back of the book is like a voice uh, written note that I I took loads. Is just like I imagined I had characters in novels or whatever that they could be. And then and then the first first version of the book had all of that stuff in. Mm. And actually, some of it didn't stay because the act of writing it down giving it a chapter heading putting a little page number and sending it off was all I needed yeah. and and also the thing that I I would I will be eternally grateful for um that I don't think I appreciated quite as much when I sold the book was that my editor does a variety of women's voices I consciously did not want to be part of someone else's agenda mm. the whole point of the book was me rediscovering my voice and making conscious choices about how I wanted to spend basically the second half of my life. Mm. And my editor does Caroline Criado Prez, who has like really amazing. specific- Yeah, amazing, amazing, but very, very of the body.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, and, you know, rightly so, but also very specific. And somebody's putting, Becky H, yeah, yes, Becky H. <laughs> <laughs> And she, but she also does at quite the other end of the spectrum, Susan Hill and also Margaret Atwood. So at every point when she questioned me in the edits, I felt extremely confident and comfortable that she genuinely wanted to know what I meant and that I was expressing myself clearly. Mm. Not, it was never kind of a, what we really find works in the home counties is, Mm. or no, 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 that's not what you think. Yeah. And that's not how we work here. And so I, d- I felt like um, I, I was my best self in the book. Like the 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 process that I went through editorially was um, the the best. I mean, as a cover, the best book ever. What I mean is, is the best for me emotionally and psychologically. It it, it is me. It is not anybody else's agenda.
0: Yeah. From that that's a really important, powerful thing to be able to say at the end of a memoir. When it's been, you know, umpteen editors legaled, you're thinking about all the other people in your life. You know, I think, you know, the memoirs that really connect with an audience and and endure over time are those where the writer has put themselves out there with all the flaws and, you know, you you do that um, with your, you know, you share your fears, you share those dark moments where you just don't know where it's going to, you, you don't know where, how it's going to turn out, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, you, you know, you're really honest about that. Particularly, I think, in the in the IVF chapters, you know, um, you, you you talk consciously about resisting that narrative of you're only successful if you have a baby. You're only a good woman if yeah. you am a mother. And, and, you know, you kind of, you call that out. And that really connected with me as a gay man. Um, and yeah. And I just, I, I, I think I will say, it's an incredible memoir and I'm really proud of you as a, as a writer and as a friend, I'm so proud of you. Um, and I just, I love watching it make its way into the world. So um, <laughs> thank you for doing it and thank you for joining us tonight. Oh my goodness,
1: thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm sorry that my picture, my son did, fell off the wall earlier. It's his Matisse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is. Every child is a Matisse, aren't they? <laughs> Can we just do that with a toast again to somebody to love?
1: And to ev- and to everybody and who's to read it and been in touch at oh.
0: all. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us. Um, Alex's book is available to pre-order from your favourite local independent bookshops and you can find oh. a list of those. There it is. You can find a list of those on our salon website. If you enjoyed tonight and you want more chat with authors, Alex is actually going to be at our next salon, which is in February, you can get a ticket. I bought a
1: ticket.
0: (laughs) You've got a ticket, thank you very much for getting one. I'm very impressed that you did that. Um, We've we've got, it's gonna be featuring this amazing book, All the Young Men um, by Ruth Coker Burks. Um, I'll just read you from the back. In 1986, 26 year old Ruth visits a friend in hospital. She notices that the door to one of the patient's rooms is painted red. The nurses are reluctant to enter. Ruth goes into that room and there she finds a young man who is dying of AIDS. Um, His death changes her life. It's an incredible um, memoir, really incredible. And um, um, who's she'll be publishing it? Uh, sorry, who's publishing it? That's a really good question. I can I can. I never remember publishers. You always do. It's Trapeze. So and the oh, okay. publisher is Mora. Um, I'm and, gonna hit um, them up. <laughs> it's really. It's, it's it's an incredible book. Um, And she'll be joined by Russell T. Davis, um, who is the creator of It's a Sin, uh, which starts on the 22nd of January, which is about that whole generation of gay and bisexual men and the people around them who were devastated by HIV AIDS. So it's going to be that's in February. And you can get tickets um, on our salon profile or on our website or on Eventbrite or anywhere you like. that will be lovely. So thank you, everybody, for joining us. Get your hands on somebody to love as soon as you can. Alex, get that glass filled up. I'll see you later on. Lots of love. Bye. Peace. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me and Alexandra Hemensley for the launch of Somebody to Love you will probably have you know seen her in the garden or heard her on women's hour or saw her in the times she's everywhere at the moment but this is a book that is really going to endure it is incredible and it's her best yet and I'm very proud to call her a friend and delighted that she could join us at the salon you can find out more about alex and her book on our website www.theliterarysalon.co.uk where you can also subscribe to our newsletter and find out what we've got going on next Thank you so much for joining us. Happy reading.